0: You are listening to Danvers Audio, a podcast by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. This episode features Albert Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and a CBMW council member. He recently spoke at our Together for the Gospel pre-conference on the National Statement, which was released last fall. The title of his talk is Understanding the Times, Knowing What to Do. Well, Good morning. Uh, very much an honor to be with you and to, uh, to be here with colleagues. appreciate so much incredibly uh, sound and helpful words of uh, my colleague, Dr. Legan Duncan, in uh, thinking through and addressing these issues. I was asked to speak about knowing the times and knowing what to do. And this, of course, takes us to the sons of Issachar found in First Chronicles, chapter 12, verse 22. They understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Well, the sons of Issachar are famous only for that. And they dropped out of most Christian imagination until evangelical management consultants arose in the 1980s and decided that that would make a mighty fine title for a book or a conference. Knowing the signs of the times... And then understanding what Israel should do. Why? Because that did reflect a changed set of circumstances, a very changed set of circumstances. Evangelical Christians began to understand that we are not living in the same world that our evangelical forebears had inhabited. And furthermore, in the lifetimes of many in this room, the world has fundamentally changed. It changed so radically. That when you consider what it means to be human, sexual and what we would now call gender identity has been so inseparable from the self, it remains so today, but so unquestioned in its inseparability from the self, that we thought, just a matter of decades ago, that even though every other major truth claim, every other fundamental institution, every other tectonic plate of the culture had been shifting. At least that was not shifting, but of course we now know that was not true. Understanding the signs of the times, the first part of this challenge is to understand that we are living in a radically new epoch. The velocity of this social change is nothing less than breathtaking. Even on the question of just same-sex marriage, as if you can say, just same-sex marriage, but let's try to isolate that for just a moment. Americans, according to the most respected survey instruments, shifted their view from a clear majority who did not believe that same-sex marriage should be legal to a clear majority believing that same-sex marriage should be legal in seven years. Seven years. So we're not talking about generational change. We're not talking about a long period of social and moral change. We're talking about seven years. Now, what? Has caught the attention even of the researchers is that that means that some of the same people being asked the same question answer the question differently. Now, by the way, uh, evangelicals or others looking at that kind of data can can sometimes misunderstand what's most important in it. What's most important in that data point is not just that a clear majority shifted an understanding about something as important as the legalization of same-sex marriage. The bigger issue to observe there is that a majority of Americans shifted what they thought they were supposed to say. Uh, When it comes to asking uh, questions about the big controversial social issues of the day, the polls really do not tell us, and most of the researchers acknowledge this, the polls really don't tell us what anyone believes about anything. What they do tell us is what people believe they're supposed to believe about these controversial issues there is a bias amongst those being surveyed to be found on the right side of the question so whether or not they have even uh, developed a considered answer to the question they have a pretty good instinct or intuition about how the culture is is moving, and uh, they want to be found on the right side of the question. So what does that tell us? It tells us that something even more fundamental than a shift on an issue took place, a shift in the culture took place, in which the intuitions of how people were supposed to answer the question, what, the, the answer that the, the uh, person being asked believed that the person asking the question wanted to hear, That shifted. There's virtually no precedent for that in human history. There's no precedent for that kind of moral change at that fundamental level, but it's not just on that issue. It's on many other issues as well. The timeliness of the Nashville Statement, uh, I believe, is Uh, self-evident. If anything, it arrived just in time. Uh, The necessity of seeking to define in biblical and in classically theological terms the questions related to human sexuality and, and gender, th- those, those issues are pressing upon us with, with so much cultural pressure and, and with such overwhelming confusion on the part of many that clarity is an absolute mandate. And biblical faithfulness requires us to be very clear. As Ligan Duncan so pastorally reminded us, being clear does not constitute a popular act. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of the challenges of leadership is being clear when people actually, even though they tell you they want clarity from the pulpit, what they want is ambiguity. They tell you they want a clear answer, but they do not want a clear answer. What they want to be given is elasticity. What they want is relief from the pressure that they feel. And that's the one thing that Scripture doesn't give us. Biblical Christianity does not give us relief. Uh, from dealing with these questions. I want us to think about three giant cultural changes without which we could not have had this revolution. Three giant changes. I've often spoken, by the way, of a moral revolution and what it constitutes. Theo Hobson, a pretty well-known liberal British thinker, probably defined a moral revolution better than anyone else. He said, in order for a moral revolution to occur, there have to be three changes. And follow these because I think you'll note just how this happens. You'll feel the rightness of his analysis when you hear it. He says, for a total revolution in morality to take place, three things have to happen. First, what was condemned must be celebrated. It's easy to understand. Something that was morally condemned is now morally celebrated. But that's just the first stage. The second stage is that which was celebrated must be condemned. So in order to have a true revolution, you've got to have a turning of the world upside down. So what was condemned is celebrated, but what was celebrated is now condemned. But the third thing is also necessary, and that is that those who will not celebrate are condemned. And I think that describes our predicament pretty well. And, and by the way, Theo Hobson is a proponent of the moral revolution. He's a proponent of this theological revisionism. He understands, as a theologian, what is at stake. He is a champion of this, uh, this new morality. But he does understand its basic incompatibility with biblical Christianity, and he certainly understands the predicament of biblical Christians in such an age. Three necessary steps for a moral revolution, and then three necessary components of the cultural change. The first is the sexual revolution. Now, that's been a language that Americans have understood at least since the 1960s. This is, by the way, no news, I guess, to you, the year 2018. That's 50 years after 1968. So it was just a matter of 50 years and a few months ago that San Francisco and uh, And others experienced the summer of love, as it was called, the, the great festival of the sexual revolution. And then 50 years ago, that great year of revolution, 1968, much of it directed towards overthrowing repressive sexual morality. The roots, of course, of the sexual revolution go back much further than that. And uh, just explicitly in the 20th century, you can go back to figures such as Freud and the whole psychotherapeutic revolution and come to understand even in the 19-teens and the 1920s, there was an explicit effort to overthrow a repressive Christian uh, sexual morality. It didn't get too far. It uh, it was represented mostly amongst uh, cultural elites and the artists uh, who tended to gravitate to places like Paris and New York. It didn't show up in Topeka. But in 1968, the sexual revolution spread to major American college and university campuses. And then you can just fast forward history. Fifty years later, the people who were protesting are now the people who are retiring from tenured positions in the academy. Uh, the revolutionaries got tenure. Tenure. And and so what was an understood radical claim in the 1960s became the curriculum of the decades thereafter. And of course now it's a matter of legislation and judicial action and, and all the rest. But behind the sexual revolution, we need to note, was a moral mandate. It wasn't just the argument we should set sex loose in the society. It was the argument that Christianity, biblical Christianity, has represented a totalitarian, uh, paternalistic, horribly repressive regime of sexuality that has limited human happiness and led to untold human suffering. So we need to understand that when, when we start speaking as biblical Christians in this culture, saying, you are excluding our voice, you, you are violating our convictions, you're even violating our religious liberty... You've got to understand, the, se- the, the people who've been driving the sexual revolution say, exactly, we told you that at the start. That's exactly what's happening. And you have someone like Feldblum, a member of the EEOC, long-time law professor. And, and she's been very honest about saying that she cannot, and remember, we're not talking about someone who's just an academic theorist now, we're talking about someone who's, who is a commissioner on the, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, a powerful federal commission. She says that the collisions between religious liberty and, and what we might call sexual liberty are inevitable, and famously she said she could not envision any circumstances in which the religious claims should ever win. Well, all right, we've, just, we've been told that the, uh, the decisions made before even the particulars of any case arrive at the EEOC. And we have to understand just how brazen that appears, but how confident persons making such such claims are. The sexual revolution has won in ways far beyond the imagination of those who launched it Uh, because it's now driven into the moral intuitions of children. It's it's now being driven into uh, the moral lives of toddlers. And and then, of course, with the sexual revolution came what even most of the founders of that revolution did not foresee, and uh, that was the T in LGBT, Uh, the denial of a binary between male and female and of a binding assignment of gender that corresponded to biological sex. It took an entire intellectual revolution to even come up with the intellectual tools in which to make that distinction. So the word gender, which had been applied only to nouns in foreign languages, uh, became the assigned issue of the social construct of the self. By the way, that word repression, uh, don't go over that too quickly. Because the idea of the sexual revolutionaries, especially those influenced by Freud and the developments of the early 20th century, they believed that healthy humanity was an unrepressed humanity. Now, by the way, a little footnote here, Freud understood that you don't want to live in a society of totally unrepressed people. Uh, Freud was at least honest about that. Uh, But there should be the understanding that the conflicts within the self are largely due to societal repression. And so, in the name of freeing humanity, in the name of human dignity, in the name of psychological health, uh, we need to get over repression. Well, the only way to get over repression is to stop repressing. And uh, when it comes to sexuality, setting the libido loose was the goal. The second big development is secularization. Uh, For sake of time, I will not go into great detail about the difference between secularism as an ideology and secularization as a process, the most important thing to recognize is this, and I want to press this case very, very clearly. The most important aspect of the secular equation is this. Most modern people, and especially those closest to policy, closest to politics, closest to the academy... Most people do not live consciously under the binding authority of theism. I didn't say they don't believe any God. I didn't say they're not religious people. I didn't say they're not spiritual people. I said they do not live under any sense of the binding authority of theism. And that means that even though they may go to church occasionally, they may consider themselves spiritual people, they do not understand themselves to be bound either by God nor certainly by any divine revelation. They're basically free agents in a secular world. The world may be haunted by theism, but increasingly the people in the most elite structures of our society do not even remember a Christianity that they now reject. They're just rejecting even the haunting presence of Christianity. Now, I want to press an argument here. This is a topic of my current research. I'm going to argue that there is no precedent throughout human history for the limitation of the libido without theism. I don't think there are any lasting examples in human history of non-theistic societies being able to restrain the sex drive. And I think if you just look through human history, you do cross-cultural analysis, it takes theism, first of all, to have a thou shalt and a thou shalt not. Uh, It takes theism to provide the, the unitary morality. By the way, polytheism doesn't do this. Polytheism, you've got different gods serving different purposes, some of them usually serving purposes of sexual fulfillment and, of course, of reproduction. Uh, You've seen the biblical backgrounds, encyclopedias, and dictionaries of the ancient Canaanite deities. You can pretty much figure that out. The third big development is autonomous individualism. You can't have our current moment without this. And that autonomous individualism means that the average person now considers himself or herself a project. Now this is fundamentally new again in human society, it's, it's very new in human consciousness because the one thing people knew about themselves in almost every previous epoch is who they are, not because it's who they desired to be, certainly it's not because they're a project that they're developing over time, but they knew themselves by assignment. They knew themselves to be the son or the daughter of these parents, to be born into this community, to be assigned at this time. Now, there were aspects of this that, that we could see were fixed in a class structure that, uh, that no longer exists. And in many ways, we can, we can be happy no longer exists, because if, if it did exist in the same form, then we wouldn't be the people in the meeting. Someone else would, uh, would be talking about these things. We wouldn't have access to some of these discussions. We wouldn't have access. Just look at uh, nonconformist Protestants in Great Britain, and uh, remember how fairly recently it is that a Baptist, for instance, could even uh, enroll at uh, Oxford or Cambridge University. So there, there, are, there are issues in that disappearing class structure of which we can be very happy. But the fundamental issue is that the, the person believed themselves to be assigned, to be identified at birth, to have a secure place in society. And amongst the things that were certainly taken for granted as, as just a, a, an ontological fact was being made either male or female, with an entire set of expectations and roles throughout society and throughout the lifetime implied by being born male or female. In contrary now, uh, in contrast, we have very, very young children who are being told at unbelievably early ages that they are autonomous individuals, they are projects whose main responsibility is to figure themselves out and to define the self. Now, by the way, here's an issue of biblical theology. We aren't very good at that. Uh, we're not really competent with the self as a project. Uh, the Bible's really clear about the fact that that leads to disaster. Uh, we can't handle the self. One of the most comforting realities of Christian truth is that we find ourselves defined as Christians by the Creator and defined by our Redeemer, defined specifically in Scripture with a definition that, as Jesus said, goes beyond even what it means to know our mother and our father, or know, to know our, our place and time and space in human history. But I have to fast forward in a moment to get there. This self-defining drive of the modern post-Christian human is an enormous responsibility. And again, we we now have elementary school teachers being told they are to ask children their preferred personal pronoun regularly. Um, We we, we now have Oprah, just to take an example, who, uh, who has for years now brought on children at the ages of four, seven, nine, who say they're experiencing gender dysphoria and that they're really a girl trapped in a boy's body or a boy trapped in a girl's body, and parents are berated for not encouraging their children all the way to puberty-blocking drugs and surgery for sex reassignment. Now, one of the interesting things we need to note here and uh, theologically, let's just remind ourselves that one of the proofs of the Christian biblical worldview is its internal consistency. Uh, we don't have a doctrine here that we then have to deny in order to affirm this biblical doctrine on the other hand. We believe that Scripture is a, is a whole. It's, a, it's not only a canonical whole, it's a, it's a cognitive whole. It's a, it's a body of truth given to us in which all truth is... And by the way, we don't believe that the doctrines of the Christian faith merely do not conflict. We believe that they are all saying the same thing. So just another reminder of theology, the Christian affirmation of the unity of the transcendentals is that in God, a God who is truth and is all truth and from whom all truth comes is united such that truth is not disunited in God. So the good, the beautiful, and the true, for example, are actually the same thing. It's very comforting to us. That means that nothing can be good that isn't beautiful. Nothing can be true that isn't beautiful and good. This is why, for instance, we believe that the, uh, the face of a baby with Down syndrome, or for that matter, a, 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 an adult with Down syndrome, is infinitely more beautiful then the artificial standards of beauty our society wants to hold up and say, that's beautiful. It's because of the imago dei. Again, it's a comprehensive claim. It's based in ontology. But this project of the self means that the individuals now bearing this responsibility to ask, and again, now we're being told to be asked repeatedly, ongoingly, not only in the early stages of life, but at every stage of life, do you really know who you are? And, and, and at the level of your gender identity and your sexual orientation, most importantly, your gender identity, do you really know who you are, and is this who you intend to be? Is this the real you? By the way, this is something that's coming up in the literature now. It used to be a midlife crisis meant a red Corvette. Now it means... That little red dress. Uh, this is a, this is a very different thing. It, it's a, you know, so you have a midlife crisis. You have someone, and and that's one of the. It's one of the interesting questions is that why you've got so many people 55 to 65, who are all of a sudden undergoing gender. And many of them will say, I really didn't have much thought about this earlier. But again, it's the self as an ongoing project. Now let me, let me point to a couple of contradictions here that are important. One just in the culture. Let's just use the acronyms LGBT. Now, there's also QIA, and I, I noticed recently it's just a plus sign because there's no end to this. There are going to be more letters coming along. Have, have you noticed the basic incompatibility between LGB and T? There's a lot of incompatibility there. Uh, for instance, the, uh, the gender feminists in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond Uh, argued that if they knew anything, they knew what a woman was and who a woman was not. And so you had famously the seven elite women's colleges. Guess who could get into them? Only women. Uh, Only women were admitted. Only women were graduated. Only women could take classes. Only women could often be on the the campuses. Some of them were declared to be basically women-only enclaves. It's it's hard to talk about this in a way that... uh, a Southern Baptist can be comfortable. This takes us way outside our comfort zone. So I'm, I'm going to have to, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm go- I, I need this illustration, but I, I've got to clean it up, all right? So amongst the ultra-liberal feminists of just recent vintage, the, the thing that was so popular on campus was a dramatic uh, performance. It was written by a woman by the name of Eve Ensler, And I'll just say the word monologue was in it. You can, you know what this is, okay. But you can't do that now on these same campuses. And I mean, you can't do it as if Eve Ensler now says, she's not invited back. Why? Because it is no longer true, according to this world, that women are defined by those who are born uh, anatomically as women. And so you have one of these colleges, and by the way, they're all caving on this, to great controversy and internal conflict. Because you've got the older feminists who are saying, this is only for women. And then you've got the younger revolutionary saying, yes, but a woman can be anything but one thing. So you actually have one of these schools that has eight boxes. You've got to love this, eight boxes. I won't go through them all, but it's basically born male now identifying as female born female now identifying as male by the way you can't be in, admitted as a male either real or perceived but you can transition to male after you're admitted as a woman and you can graduate as a man well anyway there's there are 8 permutations the only one that's not <laughs> the only one that's not allowed is born male identifies as male you can't be admitted, you can't take classes, and you can't graduate, but any other permutation is possible. And you look at that and you go, oh, what sane society can hold on to that contradiction? Um, Planned Parenthood of Kentucky, Indiana, and just in case you notice, you're, you're in Kentucky, this is not exactly Berkeley, um, this is not Manhattan, this is Planned Parenthood of Kentucky, Indiana, recently tweeted out, this, this became viral nationwide, that not all women have, and mentioned, female anatomy. Well, that got a lot of attention, because some of the old feminists in Planned Parenthood said, well, yeah, they do. And so you've got this contradiction that's going on there, and it's, it's absolutely massive. And uh, yet, yet the sexual revolutionaries are arguing We've got, to, we've got to absorb this. The, 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 it's, it's kind of like kryptonite. We've got to absorb this transgender identity uh, because they too are a repressed sexual minority and, uh, and thus we've got to accept it within, within the revolution. But that means, by the way, that you've got another fundamental set of differing claims because the LGB part of the equation gained its sexual traction all the way to the Obergefell decision at the U.S. Supreme Court in 2015. Gained its traction by arguing that sexual orientation is a fixed reality. So much so they were arguing about a genetic basis or a biological basis to sexual orientation. But you throw this new issue into this and the transgender revolution says that you don't know who you are at any time. Uh, You're an evolving self at at all times, and it's not fixed. And then things started to come unraveled even on the L part of LGBT because by the time you came to the last decade, you not only have lesbians, you have hasbians, Uh, those who identified as lesbians, but they don't anymore. And so hasbians is actually a term that one of them came up with themselves. The point is this autonomous individualism. It, It is a very damaging imposition to the self, it's a greater weight than the self can carry. You think about the contradictions, as you see, as I mentioned, on the college campuses. You think about the downshifting and downloading of this entire burden, even to young children. You think about the, the conflict between the deterministic arguments and now the arguments based merely on autonomous individualism. You know, we are now being told... That we must shift what we ought not to think. It's very interesting. Morally speaking, this is a more powerful argument than we ought to think. It's just something that's, it's common. You see it in political rhetoric, you see it in the society around you. You probably notice it in preaching. We tend to remember that thou shalt not even better than the thou shalls. Somehow there's something in fallen human nature where we hear that you can't do this louder then we hear that you should do this. And I think you, if anyone who's been the parent of a two-year-old or a three-year-old fully understands that, the more offensive thing is always that thou shalt not. But what we've experienced in just the last generation is a complete shift in the what we ought to think about what people ought and ought not to do. And the end result of that is that gospel-minded Christians... Uh, committed to a biblical worldview, committed to the very theism that turns out to be the only binding authority that has had any lasting restraint uh, uh, upon setting the sex drive and the the libido free, it turns out that we are now the people who ought not to be heard. Uh, We are the people whose words ought not to be heeded. The revolution that has been set loose is not stopping. It it has no breaks. There's, There's no way for it to stop. It can't stop because even as Karl Marx mentioned in his famous statement, everything that is solid melts into air. If you are going to be a revolutionary at the level of atomizing and dissolving personal identity into a project, and if you're going to remove theism and any binding authority in religion, then, by the way, I I will argue for a steady state theory of moral judgment. Every society is making a pretty steady uh, and and equal amount of moral judgment. The way the moral judgment is made is what shifts. And and, and so if you're going to do that, then your own moral imperative has no way to say, well, we're going to stop here, because there's always going to be a new sexual minority that will show up, making a new set of claims. And given the fact that you've privileged those claims even before they exist, and, and you've, you've eliminated any boundary, then it's just a matter of time. And some now see that. By the way, some of the sexual revolutionaries who were pressing for uh, the normalization of adultery and, uh, and, and premarital sex, so some of the people who were pushing even for uh, what was early styled the gay rights movement, they're very troubled uh, by where this is going. But the very arguments that they employed have led us to this point. Now, When it comes to biblical authority, I I want to put in a footnote here because this happened just in recent days. Did any of you notice the red letter revival in Lynchburg? It got some attention. Um, It was a publicity event, but uh, that's all right. They, uh, They got publicity. Uh, it was Tony Campolo, Shane Claiborne, kind of the usual folks they gather together. They call themselves the Red Letter Christians. It goes back to 2007 when Claiborne and Campolo... And by the way, I've known Tony Campolo for years. He's, he's, a, he's always been very gracious to me. We've, we've found ourselves in many conversations, but uh, we're in very different places as we think about evangelical identity and evangelical theology. But uh, they had their Red Letter Revival and uh, and it split over the LGBT issues, but it, 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 by the way, you can't split over this, and I say it. They, they had a division, but the division, if you don't have assigned boundaries, if you're not held to biblical authority, then it turns out not to be a division, because they ended up then having LGBT speakers, and if you have LGBT speakers, QIA and ongoing, then you are making a declaration, you are now the conference that had openly LGBT speakers, and they called for the normalization of LGBT persons in the church without moral judgment or restriction. Okay, I get that. But, but this is where we also have to understand that this whole idea of the red-letter Christians a problem because they said, and, and this is what's interesting, Tony Campola in an interview just days ago said, during the 70s, 80s, and 90s, evangelicals were rightly preoccupied with theological orthodoxy, such as attention to the epistles of Paul. But we 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 nailed that, and now we need to pay attention to the words of Jesus. And 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 by the way, I don't like red-letter New Testaments. I know if you publish one or you're carrying one, I'm not saying, don't. I'm just saying they imply. First of all, those of you who know enough about the uh, the text of the New Testament know you're not exactly what to make sure what to make red anyway. Just try that with John three. I'll let you argue that later. (laughs) But the worst thing about the red letter. New Testament is that it implies that the red letters are more important than the other letters, which is incompatible with our understanding of the verbal inspiration of Scripture. But this is where, I, I, when I get called by reporters on this, I always say, well, I'm happy for a moment to turn to the red letters. Because it's not just Paul who understood what marriage was, it's Jesus. Matthew chapter 19, answering the Pharisees, Jesus said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now notice Jesus grounds sexual identity, sexual orientation, And certainly being made male and female, he grounds those gifts in creation. It was from the beginning. God created them, male and female. And then went on to say, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's in the, and I I don't care which red letter edition you have, that's in red. But this is where we see uh, one of the issues of necessity for the Nashville Statement. And, and that is, there are persons who are asking, what do Christians believe about these issues, about these truths? We have another question. I, I appreciated so much what Ligon said about how especially young Christians hear us. But this is where we also need to flip the equation. Is love ever telling someone other than the truth? Is love, could love possibly be defined as encouraging persons to live in rebellion to creation or in rebellion to the purpose that God made them? Is it really love to tell persons that they are sentenced for the rest of their lives to the project of the autonomous self? Is that really love? This moral revolution requires that love be reconceptualized in a way that isn't compatible with Scripture. Love, I remember from that stupid line in the 60s, is never having to say, you're sorry. By the way, could not be said by anyone who ever had a friend, not to mention a wife. (laughs) But uh, that's, that's, that's not love. That's not love. Love means you're often having to say, you're sorry. But love certainly is not saying you be you. That can't be. That can't be love. There is no way you can take the gospel of Jesus Christ and say that it can be summarized as you be you. As a matter of fact, if it can be summarized, it has to come down to you can't be you as you are defining yourself. But by God's grace... You can be you in Christ. I've been struggling as a theologian with how best to understand our theological doctrinal response to this revolution. I am increasingly convinced that the answer is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm increasingly convinced that what we have lacked in our theological arsenal and in our thinking is the robust doctrine of union with Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we read, beginning in verse 4, We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism unto death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey your passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been bought brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. And what does that mean for us? It means for us, at least, our understanding of union with Christ means that if we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we are justified in the name of Christ and by the Holy Spirit of God. If we are united to Christ, then our identity is first and foremost established by Him. In a fallen world, here's the bad news. Even our identity that should be clear in creation is a problem for us. Because given our own sinfulness, our identity given in creation appears not to have the binding authority on us that it should have. But our identity united with Christ must The gospel is the promise that that union can bear the freight of all of our questions. It tells us that we are liberated from the project of the self, not by therapy, uh, not by politics, uh, certainly not by shifting cultural currents, but by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're living in a world that is so confused that one prominent activist has said that we're going to have to stop in all of our legal language. And, and, And when I say prominent, I mean prominent that we're gonna have to stop referring to people in legal contracts and in the law as men and women or as male and female and simply refer to people with uteruses and people with prostates. It's hard to know how you can regain cultural sanity on the other side of that. We have a responsibility there, but our main responsibility isn't to try to help this culture regain cultural sanity is to make certain that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ maintains a gospel sanity. That's going to be enough to keep us at work till Jesus comes or we die. But the Bible, God's Word, and the indwelling Christ, and the gift of the Holy Spirit are all we need for faithfulness until He comes. Resources like Danvers Audio are made possible by the financial support of our individual and church partners. If you or someone you know has benefited from the ministry of CBMW, please consider becoming a partner today by visiting cbmw.org forward slash partnerships. Thanks for listening to Danvers Audio.